Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, somewhat professional golfer, along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue Baloo, how you doing? I'm really good. So we were out playing golf on Saturday. You you just, in your words, describe the, the magic. So you had, uh, so you, you teed off and you were off the green by, I guess, maybe 20 something yards. Yeah, tw- I'd say 25 yards. 25 yards. And you chipped up and the ball bounced and went right into the hole. Yes. Yes! It's in the hole! So you broke your birdie cherry. Yes! <laughs> is, that what, is that what it's called? My birdie cherry. First birdie ever. I was so excited for you. Uh, now, what did you think? You play a lot of golf. What did you think of my game? Just And if you're just listening, I'm involved uh, with ESPN on a September 10th matchup against my regular golfer broadcast partner, John Ireland. I'm getting... 26 strokes. So I'm already got a 26 stroke lead, but I'm not great. How, how is my game? Do you think? Your game is very impressive for somebody who's just started playing. Really? And I know that you get really down on yourself. It's like, Oh, I can't believe I hit it over here. or I hit it over there. You know, I, I watched a tournament, a professional tour, you know, there was a match on a, a tournament on this weekend. Yep. And these are guys that are incredible, okay? Yep. And they were missing greens and putts, and it kind of makes you feel a little bit better about yourself <laughs> as being like a, a, you know, a weekend hacker. Every bad shot they have, it makes me feel better about myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you really, um, you get you get um, club on the ball, you get air. I mean, the ball flies. Um, it's maybe not a, you know accurate all the time. Right. But you you're able to actually lift the ball up. You're not really shanking it a lot, which is um which is pretty amazing. It's yeah. a very hard thing to do. Nice. Now, how long have you been playing? Oh God, I've been playing on and off for like, I don't know, probably twenty something years. Yeah. Your game looks good. Eh, it needs it needs a lot of work. That last hole we both fell apart. Oh my God. <laughs> you you just totally hacked that one out. Oh, I mean, that's, that's when I just hate the game so much. Cause, you know, I, what I, what I can't fathom sometimes, it's like, how do I play so well and then suck so bad? Yeah. I mean, how, how is that? You know, I was, I was reading about this and see if this resonates at all with you. That golf, there's something very spiritual about golf. You know, in Buddhism, they talk about being unbotherable. And isn't that really what golf's about? That when things go wrong, can you be unbotherable? Can you just work through that and stay in that present? I mean, isn't there something, a component of that? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you, it's, it's kind of like you, I think about it in, in, in a lot of sports. And I always go to baseball because that's kind of, you know, my go to sport. Sure. But, you know, you look at a pitcher who's, you know, who's amazing and, uh, you know, gives up eight runs in the first inning. Or, you know, a, a, a batter who, who's 0 for 25. Yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, you just have these moments. And with golf, I found, you know, which I, I try to do, but sometimes I'm not successful at it, is just that's like, that's one shot. That's, that's one hole. You know, you had a bad hole. It's unfortunate when you end your round on a bad <laughs> hole. <laughs> we both did. And, we both and, had and a terrible hole. That to me is the worst. Because then I'm going home, like, you know, I, I had that great shot. I think it was the seventh or eighth hole where I was like, you know, just feet from, from the cup. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that, and that birdie putt, I mean, it just, it just it hung stood on up the rim. Lip. Oh, I tried jumping God. up and down, maybe trying to cause, <laughs> you know, a little earth movement to get that oh. thing to fall. I was right on the edge, right oh. on the lip. That was painful. But yeah. like I said to Singer, who we, who we golf with, if that was for par and I got a bogey, I would have been so pissed off. Yeah. But it was birdie for a par. So I got a par. So yeah. that was great. Um, but leaving, leaving on a bad hole to me, like 
ruins my whole day. Yeah, I hate when the last ball at the driving range is a terrible shot. Well, you know what I do? What? <laughs> you quit with some balls left? Yes. Sometimes I do. And usually it's a ball or two. I won't leave like 10 balls there or five balls there. Yeah. But if, if my second to last shot is really good, I leave. <laughs> and it's funny because there are times when people are waiting yeah. To, yeah. to take over the mat. Sure. And they'll look at me like, oh, you got one more ball. And I said, not today. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of today, we have got a really, really cool guest uh, today. Uh, he is one of the greatest stand-up comics of all time. He's also a prolific actor and writer. His big breakthrough acting role was in Barry Levinson's 1982 film, Diner. What a great movie. After roles in films like Beverly Hills Cop and Aliens, he jumped to the television mega hit, Mad About You. And his latest project is the hilarious Kaminsky Method. He has been nominated for the Emmy for Best Supporting Actor. Paul Reiser joins us. Paul, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. My pleasure. What? What is it? What was so important that you hounded me? What? What is it? What's this Emmy nomination you got, man? Congratulations. You know what the secret is, Steve? The huh. minute you stop caring, they call you. <laughs> I literally said, you know, I, I literally, I, I, I wish I'm not even pretending to be modest or cool. I didn't have any idea it was going on. <laughs> literally, I went, I got, I landed, I was flying out of town. I landed and, and I got a whole bunch of texts that said, congratulations. I thought, I'm landing safely? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? You know, it'll be like literally somebody tomorrow will get, but you know, you won the Nobel. What? I didn't know I was up for that. Anyway, so yes, it was a lovely surprise. And, uh, you know, the cherry, that's the icing on the cherry, but the, you know, the just being in this fun show with all these great people and great writers and Chuck Laurie and Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, Sarah Baker. So it, it was great fun and a joy. And then to get nominated, pretty fun. So how did this part come to you? I'm cutting out the first four wise-ass answers. <laughs> oh, don't, don't do that. Don't cut them out. We want the wise-ass answers. Don't censor the wise-ass. <laughs> I, I, I will get to your question in a second, but don't say. <laughs> All right. So I had to do one of these things because now I'm nominating all these little press things. And one of them was answer these 40 quick questions. Like, ah, I already hate this. What, what could it be? I don't like filling out anything. And it's like, what's your perfect, what's your idea of a perfect, you know, everything, perfect breakfast, perfect, perfect alibi, perfect expression. And I, and I, I, I don't know. And now I'm thinking, don't cut the wise ass. That's going to be what I put down. <laughs> don't cut the wise ass, as Sukolinski says. Um, how did it come? You know how this came to me in the craziest way? And I urge your listeners to not try and do this at home. Because it doesn't work like this ever. Um, my buddy, I, I, I'm friends with Chuck Lorre for years and years and years ago. I knew Chuck, and I would keep in touch with him, friends every couple of years. And the running gag in the last few years, not gag, but let's let's do something together. And we we floated the idea, and um, then I had seen the first season of Kaminsky Method, and I thought it was just so great. So if I can be proud for him, I was like, this is such a different thing you created here so i just emailed him and i said it's great and i jokingly said why don't we do that you and me i could sit in a car for you know i could do a show it's two guys sitting in a car all day <laughs> and uh and he said let's have lunch so i showed up for lunch and i had you know the vaguest idea of an idea for a show i said what if we did this and that and he went okay and he said and uh you don't have to answer right away but would you like to be on Kaminsky? I went, I'm going to answer right away. Yes, I would. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, so apparently he had this idea for this character for season two that would be go an older guy going out with Michael's younger daughter, which would be nice karmic payback for a guy who's been dating young women as a lot. So he had the idea, and I don't think he was thinking me because I'm such a young pup. But uh, <laughs> then he said, we're going to age you up and we're going to, you know, pad you and bald you and ponytail you and uh so now the great thing of that is when i take that off i look fantastic because i go well compared to how you looked a minute ago now you're yes you're 30 pounds overweight but you're not 40 pounds 
And you, you, know, have, a, you, you have a full a, head of hair. As a tribute yes. to you, Paul, and your acting. So I'm watching the show because I know we're going to have you on the podcast. And so I'm watching. I said, when's Paul Reiser going to be here? When when does Paul Reiser show up? And I didn't even recognize you. My partner walks into the room and says, hey, that's Paul Reiser. I'm like, I never, I could never wow. tell. That's so funny. It was very impressive. So I have to tell you that um, looking at you in this show, you are a pair of wire rim round glasses away from being a Jewish Ben Franklin. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's so funny. I saw one shot and I went, you know what? Give me a kite and a stamp <laughs> and I'm good. I saw that. And do we know that Ben Franklin was not himself Jewish? You know, we don't know, actually. Don't assume. Don't assume. Yeah. It's very possible. But, but so many friends of mine who know that I know you said, I'm watching Kaminsky Method, and I haven't seen Paul Reiser in a while. And it's like, does he really yeah. look like that? I can't tell you. I, I got <laughs> what, what was worse than getting calls like that was getting friends call other friends because they were afraid to ask me. <laughs> he let himself go? <laughs> yes, but not to that extent. <laughs> That's my answer. I have indeed let myself go. You know what was really funny? I don't know if you have found this too, to be true, but my somebody sent a tape of something I did in 1982 that was so silly. It was a it was some cable, really low cable TV thing. But uh, we were playing it, and my kids were laughing because my New York accent was so much more pronounced back then that almost cartoonishly, I went, I don't remember ever trying to turn the wheel away from that. But do you did you ever have more of a New York accent? You know, I, I, you know, the only New York accent that really comes out in me is every now and then, you know, the ER is an A and the A is an ER. So mother, you know. Yes. But people have That's always weird. told me that um, that I don't really sound like I'm from New York. And you, sometimes I get insulted by that. Yes. Where did you grow up in New York? I don't even know. I grew up in Long Island. Okay. My kids were both born here in L.A. And to my great joy, they both have New York accents. Oh, they, that's great. I guess if I've done nothing else for them, <laughs> they sound a little bit more street than a Beverly Hills kid would have sounded. Can can we go back to your uh, your stand up comedy and your start in the whole thing? I've been trying to for years, <laughs> but go ahead, you try. So, so where did it start? Like, as a kid, did you think I- I'm going to be a stand up comic? When did when did that thought? I don't know, but now that Jackie Mason's dead, I got an open path, I think. Uh, I believe <laughs> there is an open slot, because I would love to say, Mr., I'm talking to you. Um, no, I don't. I, you know what? I don't think I ever, I don't know if any of us had that thought. It's such a stupid thought. Um, you know, and I grew up in a very, you know, middle class upbringing, and it wasn't ever, like, there wasn't one of the boxes you could check. Um, I think my parents would have thought, you know, I, I, my father had a successful business that got more successful as, as I got older. I thought, I think he always thought I, he, I did, he wanted me to go into that. So that was, so to explain to him who took a business from, started it and built it into something very successful and wanted to hand it off for him to go, what is it you're going to do? You're going to go to the club on second Avenue. I'm sorry. And you're going to stay out till two in the morning and you're going to make no money. And no promise of any success. Well, that sounds reasonable. That's a good plan. So, no, I, I don't think I did. I loved it. I, I was drawn to, you know, on Ed Sullivan, it was the Beatles, and then Alan King and Richie Pryor and every comic that was there. And once in a while, maybe a guy with a spinning plate and Herman's Hermits. Um, I'll tell you a funny story in a second. So, um, so I didn't, I didn't think that. And then what I think for so many of us in our generation of comics, Sue and I, I was in, I was a freshman in college. Yeah. And 73. And suddenly there were these new big hotshots, Freddie Prinze and Gabe Kaplan and, and uh, uh, Jimmy Walker and David Brenner to in a different path. And, it was clear that you go to these clubs, you go to the improv, you go to Catch a Rising Star, and that's sort of where it happened. So that was the thing that opened up. I, I still didn't think I'm going, to, I must have wanted to do it. I, I certainly didn't presume it would work. You know, it's a crazy plan. But had there not been a really laid out 
structure, like go to this place, get a number, wait like an idiot for, you know, eight hours and then go on at two in the morning. Uh, I don't think I ever would have been able to forge a path. There are guys who would say, well, I'm going to get a microphone and stick it up in a cafeteria and I'm going to put on a show. Why would you do that? That's crazy. Nobody wants that. Um, so it's kind of, it was the right time, you know, that just when I was young enough and, and old enough and young enough that these clubs opened up that I could go and join that community. So did you, did you pass the first time you auditioned? You, did you audition at the, it wasn't the comic strip. What was it? Catch? No, I went to catch and I didn't pass. Uh, no, I, you know, I, I <laughs> my freshman year, I went out to audition one time. Five minutes, literally two in the morning. I have the tape somewhere. It's just humiliating. You hear my tape recorder was on the table in the back, and you hear two guys not seeing the tape recorder going halfway into my five minutes. One guy said, "Well, I'll say this much: the kid's got balls." <laughs> I thought, "Well, that, that's a good review, isn't it?" <laughs> he didn't say I don't have balls. He's staying <laughs> on the mechanical bull. <laughs> yeah, he hasn't <laughs> fucking quit. So, um, and then I think, but but. I'm, if I went back to school for sophomore year, and we, oh, what would you do this summer? And I just couldn't wait to say, I, was, I worked as a comedian. No, you didn't. I mean, five minutes, one time. But it was enough for me to wrap myself around and cling to it. I went, I'm a, I, I worked as a comedian. And then the second summer, I think I did it twice, and obviously didn't pass, nor should I, was I deserving of passing. And then I think I didn't pass at Catch. I went to the comic strip. I don't remember if it was the first time or not. I don't remember. Probably not. I do remember waiting online, but I remember one night Seinfeld was the MC, and and the, and the, the you know it was the mixed blessing. If you were doing well, if you were like the better comic, which Jerry was and Larry Miller was, you, they would let you MC, which turns out that's a terrible job. You got to stay there all night, and you it's just tedious and horrible. But you also in that club anyway, you would select you know, who you thought was going to get knighted. And on one night, it was Carol Liefer, Rich Hall, and myself. Mm -hmm. so, so I guess it was odd that three people. But anyway, so we are all, all comedy brothers and sisters on that night. Did I answer any question that you asked? Yeah, I think you I think you've covered a lot. I actually wanted to ask you, Sue told me that she was there. Sue, you were there the night uh, Paul did The Tonight Show? Your first Tonight Show. You were where, at the comic strip? You were, I, I, when you did your first Tonight Show, I was in the audience. Did I know that? Did you come with me? I no, I didn't come with you. Um, I think I may have come with was was Carol there? I just remember. I don't think so Carol, I don't think Carol was out yet. Really? I remember seeing um, and, and and if it wasn't your first Tonight Show, then maybe I'm trying 82. to think. Eighty two was it? Eighty two. I mean, that's when my first Tonight. Yeah, show. it was eighty two. April eighty two. Yes, I was living out in L A. Really, and I was there for your first Tonight Show. Well, how did I think? I, I think I might have. I think I may have gone there with Paul Provenza. That makes more sense. I don't have any recollection of that or anything that night, other than you know, I've seen. Uh, that was the only, one and only time that I did stand up. Everything else after that, I didn't do it for a couple of years, and then when I came back, and then suddenly it worked, and I came back. They had me back, and we just did it from the couch and it was a much easier, better format for me. And, um, but I've seen clips of that first one. And I remember my mantra was just slow down. I'll get too excited. So I slowed down so much. I was almost going backwards. I was like, I watched it. I'm going, Oh, get to the end of this sentence. Holy crap. It was so, it was so controlled. It was, and I don't think I got a laugh for two minutes in. It was, it was a bit, uh, look at it. 40 years later, I'm going, yeah, you should have seen the late shows. The band <laughs> fucked me up is what happened. <laughs> now, I wanted to ask you, how long how, how long did it take for you to put your Tonight's Show set together? You know, uh, I don't know that I had that much learning um, so on that one. So I'm going to say a month, two months. I mean, it was, it was, I wasn't making up new stuff. I was taking what I thought would be the best presentable six minutes, whatever it was. Um, and then just sort of shaping it. And it was like, and it was like largely two big chunks uh, in there. But, you know, that was, that was the MO for years. All of us, you could just see somebody going up and that was the fun of it was just taking, finding your five minutes. And then 
you get your best five minutes and then it just, you don't do well the next night. You go, oh, this is not going to work. You go, well, no, it's not the material. It's just a bad audience or whatever. There's a million reasons that we're always chasing. Why did that joke not work? Well, they always said that, they always said that if you had a, it's kind of like in in theater, you know, the bad dress rehearsal and then the great opening night. Because I remember, you know, not, not having a really, really great set the night before I did a TV shot. But my first Tonight Show was with Jay. I, it's a whole long story. I'm not going to get into it, but I did get it with Johnny and I ended up not doing it with Johnny because it was his last year and everybody wanted to do it with him. And I did get a call from Macaulay. He gave me a date and, um, and then what happened was somebody had canceled. No, he, he called me up to tell me I got it. And then I went out of town and someone canceled and I was, and I was out of town. Oh, I ended up not doing it, but, but I do remember it not being great the night before. And then it was amazing the night of, so I don't know if you can count on that. Like I hope Tuesday sinks because I stink because I need it to be good Wednesday. So you don't want to tank this. Or if you have a good Tuesday, I'll go shit. It's going to be bad tomorrow. But yeah, it was all about that. And it was always, um, prepping and, and editing. It's funny, or I, I took a long stretch off from doing stand-up. It sounds crazy, but I, I really didn't do it for 20 years. That's how old we are. So I have 20-year groups that I can just mm-hmm. check off. But when Mad About You started in 92, I was just busy and consumed with that. And then when it was over, I was happy to take it easy. And I kept saying, well, I'll get back to stand-up soon. And by the time I did, it was 20 years. And, and I would go to the club here down in Hermosa Beach in uh, L.A., and um, I remember it was really funny. All the younger comics were going, wow, what are, you, what are you, you working on a Tonight Show set? No, no, they said, you doing an HBO special or something? I said, oh, you must be getting together with shots for Letterman or whatever it was, or, or, J- or Jay I went, or Jimmy, I don't remember who. I said, no. And they were just like, why are you here? <laughs> like, like, it's Tuesday and there's 60 people. Why would you? I said, because that's how you do this. You was it like riding a bike? Did it come, was it like riding a bike? Did it come right back? It was like riding a bike with your eye. No, it wasn't at all. Like it was, it was. Um, you know what? It's sort of like if you're a good ball player, which I'm not. But if you're not, if you're playing ball, but you haven't played in years. You know how to do it, but it's just the muscles aren't firing and the muscles are aching. Um, and so I was up there and going, feels familiar. I don't, I, I, A, I didn't have material because I didn't want, I didn't even know what my old act was, but I was, and, and, um, no, it took a good year till I felt I could do a set, a real, you know, a, a full one hour set. But, and that's a combination of getting material together, but more than that, just getting your, your, your brain and your, your mind and your, and your body. Cause it's like, oh, I'm in pajamas at nine o'clock. The show's on, I'm on at 10. That's going to be tough because I'm sleeping. Um, so it's like, you know, training, retraining yourself, but you know, what was great about it? Did you ever take a long time off? Were you doing it? Soon? Oh yeah. I, I actually took around 10 years off not that long ago. And, um, and then went up at Vitello's Wendy Liebman's room. She had been trying to get me to do stand up for so long and she kept on hounding me and hounding me. And I said, I don't do it anymore. It's just not my life. And she's like, Oh God, you were so funny. You got to come up and do it. And I said, Wendy, I appreciate it. It means so much to me, but you know what? I'm just not doing it anymore. She emails me the next day. Here are three dates. Pick one. So I picked the latest date and, and was obsessed, was obsessed and nervous for three months that I had to go on stage because <laughs> I had to do new stuff because everything, yes. like you say, I mean, nothing was relevant in my life anymore. But did you stay, did you stay doing it or was it just a while? I, I did it for a little while. And then I, I, I just, I just couldn't stay with it because I wasn't going to go to clubs the way I used to. Yeah, I no, that's just stay true. Sharp. I forgot everything. So I yeah. stopped doing it for another two years and then I went back up and did it again. And it was unbelievable. And I was like, how do I not do stand up anymore? This is so much fun. Yeah. Then the third well, that's, that's what, time that's what sort of reminded fun. me to, to do it. I, I had, I mean, it was always my intention to do it. People, you know, there are always comics who, uh, get into comedy just as a showcase and then I'll get a show and you know, but that was never my thought. I get in the back of my mind it's like, well, I guess if somebody sees thinks you're good for a sitcom or a movie, that's great. But I just wanted to be a stand up. 
Um, but so my intention was always to get back to it. And I just kept pushing it down the road. Not that I didn't want it, but I just felt like I should probably write first or I should wait till the right. Anyway, but I did one night I emceed some friend's charity thing. It was a big ballroom and it was no pressure. You MC, you tell a few jokes, introduce the mayor. And I, and I was just, I just hit some hot spot and I was just making fun of my friend who they were honoring and I was getting a laugh. So I went, and I remember walking off stage going, exactly. Why, why would I not do this? This is great. Just, it kind of felt so alive. Um, yeah. And I really miss it. But I, I'll tell you what was really interesting going back to the clubs. And I love that. And here, you know, when I lived in New York, I lived around the corner from Catch, two blocks from the comic strip. And, you know, you could do all three clubs. Here, where the only place that I would go to was like 45 minutes away. So that was the evening. You'd drive for 45 minutes, wait for 40 minutes, get on, do 10 minutes, get back and drive for it. But it was worth it every night. And every night I felt the same thing that I did at 18. It's like, mm. I can't wait to try this joke out. I think it's going to work. It's just going to be great. And then if it doesn't work, you know, if it works, you're driving back going, yeah. And if it doesn't work, you're driving back going, okay, I know what to do. Like tomorrow I'm going to switch that. And, so, and that excitement, it's, it's, it's rare. There aren't that many things that you can replicate from your younger years, but it was exactly like being 18 to 19, 20, whatever we were. Um, you may be moving slower and, and, and not having as much anxiety because like, I don't really care if Rick Newman likes me now, <laughs> um, <laughs> the owner of the club. Um, but but the excitement and the, the excitement of finding a joke, to find, and for me, it was not just the material, but it was the, um, when I say getting the muscle back, it was about making the mental leaps. Like, how do you switch subjects? How do you segue smoothly? Or, you know, how do you, oh, that bit goes with this. Look at that. Now that's even better. And it's exciting. It's exciting. Now I'm excited to get off with you guys and go do a set. So, <laughs> so you went back to stand up. You also went back to Mad About You. What was what was that experience like doing doing that uh, new sort of round of one see of the that, great sitcoms see, of all that's, time? That's what you call a segue. You took what I said. And you went, <laughs> "Hey, can I go on back?" And then you nicely done. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's my game. Uh, that was very much not not at all the same sort of uh, trajectory or, or thought process because we were very Helen and I were friends, you know, over all these last twenty years that we the show's been off twenty something. Yeah, when we did. When we got back, it was 20 years since we'd been off there. And um, we would have lunch often. And, and the one thing, we, if it ever came up, was like, oh, my God, would we never do that again. Not that it wasn't good. It was wonderful. And we loved it. But we were so proud of it. And we so happy with the way we ended it and tied everything up. It was like, done. And, and uh, we really did. I mean, I remember I found years after it was off, I found a, a journal from before the show while I was creating the show and I had all this wish list of stuff I wanted to put in the show and issues and subjects and jokes and I was afraid to open it like oh and that I didn't and like did it did it did it did oh good look at that we did everything I wanted to do so it was very gratifying so the last thing we wanted to do was you know sully it up but it was everybody was asking us because of some other whatever Roseanne or all these shows that come back or several shows that come back so we kind of had to talk about it. And we both went, I don't, I don't, do you want to know? But then we thought, well, but it would be kind of fun, A, just playing together because we love playing together, but also our show, more than maybe some other shows, lent itself justifiably to a revisit because we weren't trying to go back and say, we're 27 and we live in New York and we're newlyweds. No, we're older and tired and we have children. And what would these people be like? And it was exactly like, just, just like we did the first time. It was like, put in the thing about, I, you got to look at me when you talk. It's like, this new shit, you know, and, and um, don't talk into the refrigerator. That's not helping me. And, you know, kids and like the dynamics of raising your kids and the, the politics of, I already told her this, so make sure don't, don't, you can't contradict, you know, I said, that's, we haven't seen that because we didn't have a, anything but an infant on the show. So, so when we realized that we had a story, and then the, the kickoff, when we realized we had a, a, a story to tell, like the kids leaving, so the kids going off to college in the first episode, we said 10, and they said 12, 
All right, but that's it. <laughs> it's still so much less than 24, whatever we used to do. Um, but we realized that was actually a great kickoff, that the, if the kid's leaving and we're left alone, that very much mirrored what the pilot was. Like, okay, the hubbub of marriage, honeymoon's all over. It's like, ooh, you two in four walls. This is going to be interesting. And we realized that's the same dynamic, except we're older and tired. Wow. I um. You have probably the all-time greatest story when you got diner. Uh, that was your, you know, breakout. You got to tell the story about the you audition. Tell it. You're so happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, another example of kids don't try this at home because it doesn't work. I got diner by accident. My, and it was my very first job, if anything, first job. Uh, because my buddy, who's no longer with us, our good friend Michael Hampton Kane, a very funny comic, was going in for an audition for Diner, and they were looking for a sixth guy to round off the five guys or the main guys. And it was, you know, 1959, Baltimore Jewish kids, and Michael's tall Irish Catholic. And they came to the clubs, you know, that's what it's like, oh, somebody from ABC is coming. And so even that, and it was about diners, and my act was all about diners. I had like 40 minutes of diner material. It didn't go anywhere, but uh, they're making a movie about Diner. But they still, I didn't get tapped for some reason. I didn't get put up for that. Uh, Michael did, and he went in, and we were going, we were going out afterwards. We we're going to go. I had to get socks, and then we were going to go for lunch. And um, so I was sitting in the lobby, sitting in the waiting room, and uh, he auditioned and came out. And then the casting director, who well, I didn't know what it was, but she looked at me and she went, "You're next." I went, "No, no, no." I'm not, I'm waiting for my friend. She said, do you have a picture? I said, no, I'm just waiting for my friend. Not even here. And I tried to bow out of it. She said, but do you have a picture? I said, yeah, at home I have, I made up some eight by tens. She said, come back tomorrow and uh, meet the director. I moved recently. I was cleaning out our house and I found, you know, the boxes of crap that have moved from house to house. So I literally have stuff from my 76th Street apartment in New York that have been through five, six different homes in LA in 40 years, never open. And, you know, and, and now you get to this age, you're going, I think I can throw out these letters now. The girls who broke up with me in high school, I think we can let go of these now. And in the papers of crap was the little piece of paper that the casting director will come back tomorrow. The director's name is Barry Levinson, 130. There it is. There's the piece of paper that. I thought you were going to say that you had the pair of socks. Never got the socks. I don't recall if I got them. <laughs> Because that was the joke that we that all of us comics would say when you the next time you're going on an audition, go for go shopping, yeah, go go well, shopping for socks. Go buy some socks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I made a fortune as a sock consultant. But what was cool too about that role is that my recollection is that it wasn't as big of a role when you got it when it was originally written. That no. it was expanded, right? It expanded. Here's uh, Richie Tinkin. Rest in peace. Was the, was the owner of one of the owners of the comic strip, and when I got I got this, it was February eighty one, and I auditioned. And then the next day, yes, that's why I had to get socks. So I was going on the road. I was going to Florida because you need socks. <laughs> anyway, so I was going to Florida, playing the comic strip in Florida, and it was while I was there that I got the call. I remember in the after. I don't know why I was in the club in the afternoon. I was playing the piano or something, but maybe they had a phone. But I remember I getting this call from the producer. Uh, we'd like you, you to do the role. Uh, do you have any commitments? <laughs> any commitments? You know, in there, in the movie world, like, you know, I'm doing a film with De Niro. Do you have anything that would prevent you from doing this for the next eight weeks? And I remember I said, I have a Thursday night uh, in Bernardsville for seventy dollars. <laughs> but who that club was? What was a club? It was there was a club. Um, but I said, yeah. No. So they sent me the script, the full script, and it, to Florida, and it came with the MGM lion on the cover. I thought, this is big time. This is, and I didn't have an agent or an attorney or anything, so I just showed it. You know, I had to negotiate. I basically, I negotiate whatever the minimum scale was. I went, okay, yes, you know, it's still pretty great. It was more than you know we were making doing stand up. Um, but I remember I, I gave the script to Richie, and like I said, well, just maybe you can guide me towards you know. And he said, uh, he read the script. He said, what's your character's name? I said, Modell. He said, yeah, I don't know how to break it to you. You ain't in this. 
<laughs> it was like the start of my career. Yeah, that movie you're in, you're not in it. Um, but they, but I think Barry Levinson, who wrote it and directed, it was his first directing too. Um, had in mind that he'll be this character would be sort of the tumbler and the funny, but with no real clue as to what it was going to be. And then just as on the set, we shot all that diner stuff at the end of the shoot. So we were all kind of more friendly and loose with each other. And he would just let the cameras roll. I think I must have said something about like the sandwich. And he went, do that again, the thing with the thing. That's how he would do it. Do the thing with your ass with the thing. <laughs> now, I, I had no idea why. But that's not going to be funny. Just, just do it. And then he put it together. And it was funny. Yeah, it's so. one of the great, especially guy movies. It's one of the great guy movies of all time. It's fantastic. It always, it always tickles me in, uh, that when women say, "Oh, I love that movie." Really? They, I mean, I think women love it because it's like they let, got led into the locker room. Like, oh, so this is what you idiots talk about. Okay. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I think one of the best movies of the last decade is Whiplash, uh, directed by Damien Chazelle. And he's a fascinating director to me. What was it like on, on the set of, of that movie? What's Chazelle like to work with? He, he's great. And he's just so, it, it's almost uh, dis, uh, disconcertingly uh, calm. I mean, when I, we met, he, was, he had written Whiplash, I think he was 24. Mm. He directed, he was 26, you know, and he was just this really sweet guy. And he still is. I mean, we, we kept in touch. I was almost going to do something. He's doing a new movie now. <laughs> like, yeah, his new movie is like Lock and yeah. Key, Top Secret. Yeah. Oh, I, well, I can't tell you about it. All I can tell you is <laughs> I'm not in it. I was going to be, and we couldn't, we could, I couldn't work it. We couldn't work out the schedule. Um, but so we were chatting and he's the same guy and he's just funny and smart. And uh, I don't know where that sort of preternatural, uh, calm and confidence because that movie was stunning you know and it, it and it need not have been it was i'll tell you the truth before i before i read the script i they, they sent me the script and they sent me a dvd of the he made a what do you call like a demo of the movie mm -hmm. originally to try and raise money so he shot what was maybe the middle 20 minutes but it was with jk simmons and another young kid but it was jk simmons and it was that it's, we throw us a chair and a move and and it was brilliant. And I remember thinking, why is he? Don't pad it. Why you make you know? There was no father in their little movie. But I went, why would you make a movie bigger than that? That's great. And then I read the script. One, oh, I see. So there was more to it. But that eighteen twenty minute short was brilliant. Hmm. And first shot, I just remember it was just a beautiful shot of a snare drum and hitting you know a stick hitting a drum and a drop of blood. I went. I mean, I don't know what, this is great. All those, all those music scenes, you think about it, on the, on the page, it looks like nothing. Like, and they're playing. It's like, well, that's going to be, cut that out. But, but not only was the music itself great, but he cut it and, and, and you cared about it and you felt it. I mean, it was, uh, I saw, the first time I saw the movie was at um, Sundance and it was the opening night. And it was, which is like a big, great distinction. If you're the opening, whatever they call it, the open dome. And it was in the big 1,500-seat theater. And it was like watching a horror movie. People, strangers were grabbing each other. Oh, he's not going to throw the chair at the chair. Oh, he's doing a chair, chair at the chair. I mean, it was like that kind of intensity. Yeah, I'm not going to take that. And, and I remember we drove. It was this great reception. Then we had, I think, a little Q&A with the audience. And then we're going to uh, whatever, a party. And I was in a car with my wife and da uh, Damien and his wife. And he's just, you know, and there's already buzz. And I said, do you understand? This is the exact moment that every aspiring filmmaker dreams of. You made a beautiful film. It just crushed it at the premiere. Everybody, and, you, and I never knew, I never knew what that word buzz meant, but like, oh, you walk on the streets. It's like, you know, three streets at Sundance and everybody was talking about, did you see it? Did you see that? And they're all vying to get this movie. I went, I said, I said you don't have to do anything, but do you understand? You're in it right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> more neurotic, God's sake. What do you what do you think the state of stand-up comedy is Virginia. right now, 2021? I don't know. There's so many great performers out there. There's so many, you know, there's always been great performers, and then there's people you go, um, 
But what about the, isn't it much more tricky right now doing jokes? You know, I know, I know what you mean. I know, uh, 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 no, because the skilled people, you know, people are, people are also hardened and, you know, stuff that, you know, George Carlin was arrested for saying, fuck, honestly, um, you know, uh, and so, no, I, I think it's always been the same. Yeah, I mean, yes, there's a political correctness that makes it so what? So, so you have to write more carefully. You have to be more clever. It's like, it's, you know, it's very easy. Like, well, I can write an offensive joke and nobody will say anything. It's like, well, now people will say something. So write better and write. If you want to do that area and you want to talk about that, be more clever and have the courage of your conviction and go for it. You know, there's certain people who do it. Uh, well, um, no, I, I think it's, it's, it's just always, it's always been, uh, a hard nut to crack. It's, it's easy to do badly. It's easy to be, you know, unadventuresome and sort of generic. It's hard to stand out and be good or, or, or um, you know, when you look at the people who do, who do it great, you just, well, that's, and it's hours and hours and years and years, you know, Chris Rock was doing it for years before he became Chris Rock, Kevin Hart and Jerry, certainly, you know, and, and, uh, Anybody, you know, so when I went, when I went back to the club 10 years ago, I, and I was doing my seven minutes that was all I had. And I mean, one night the headliner was Sebastian Maniscalco and I literally had missed like an entire kids have grown up in baby comics. I was like, what? This guy's great. Well, and, but he, and he was playing arena, not arenas. He was playing, you know, headlining clubs at that point. Um, no, my mom and uh, and her boyfriend have tickets to see uh, Sebastian in just a couple of weeks. They love that guy. Yeah, he's great. He's great. And um, but I remember <laughs> I remember saying to him like because I was so new to it again. I, I had done it you know a dozen times upon coming back. I said so when you I, and I had seven minutes and I said so when you go out I said how long do you do your headline? He goes an hour hour twenty an hour twenty that's just that's impossible. And now you know it's not, um, but. That's what I'm saying. He was like being a kid again. It's like, I'll never be able to reach that top shelf. Like, well, <laughs> you did. Um, but, you know, and then in the next couple of years, suddenly like watching specials, like he's playing the garden multiple nights. Like, wow. Um, but it's not because he was lazy. It's because he went to these clubs every night. Um, you know, and there's oh, everybody has talked, you know, any number of times about it's 10 years, you know, it's, it's three years. So you can even begin to stand up straight on stage and five, seven years before you, you're worth anything. And I was doing it five, six years before I sort of found the beginning of what became what I do, whatever that's worth. Did you, did you have like a ritual when it came to writing? Like I know Jerry was, was pretty famous for, getting up at the certain time of day and eating a certain meal and writing for hours. No, um, I did never, you, did you have a ritual I was like never that? that disciplined. No, I, no, I always had my little notepad. I'd write down bits that the next day, toothpaste, biking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it must've been funny yesterday. What the hell does that mean? I'll tell you what, I, it's funny. I did find, so no, I never, I would try to write new, but you really is sort of writing on stage. You know, it's like you'd write. My ritual was usually around four o'clock and, and, and when I was living in the city, you know, and I was, I would write towards the end of the afternoon and it was sort of like the, the material would be like, like a puppy at the cage, just trying to get out. And just, I remember the ritual of the shower and getting dressed and going to the clubs, waiting to take this live puppy, and, you know, and, and letting it run free on stage and seeing it work. That, which is still the exciting part. Like if I like, Oh, that's going to be a fun bit. But in cleaning out my house, I found not only a huge box of cassettes with, I don't know, hundreds of tapes. And I listened to it. Somebody, uh, somebody was doing this documentary. Uh, Dan Pasternak was doing this documentary on Sirius radio. And so we were interviewing. He said, do you have any old tapes? And I went looking and I found, I went, yeah, but nothing that I'm going to share. I don't, it's, it's not, Hey, the audio is horrible. But, um, so I found these tapes that I'm going, my kids don't give a shit. I, and it's horrible. And just, I don't, uh, I just put it in storage, but I found an unbelievably organized three binders with my journals 
through the first 1500 sets. Wow. And I, and my, in my mind, I said, I remember I used to write down something, every, you know, and what, what I did, what worked, what didn't work. And, and, I, and my recollection was, oh, was when I got to tonight's show, I didn't need to do that. I had reached the pinnacle, but I didn't. I went another year and I went 1632. Like, you know, and some of them were informative. Some of them were just, Tuesday, small crowd, nobody left. Okay. <laughs> and then right. you write down, and you can never really get the essence of what, of anything, of any value onto paper. So, like, you know, the toothpaste Viking, you'd write down bus, you know, you'd see the shorthand, or like, which now I'm going, I don't know what that, even then, which bus joke? I have 11 bus, it just says bus. Which bus joke? So that, that's always been an ongoing battle, organizing in a way that it's uh, productive. But I, I do think having written in all these other formats and written books and written for TV, I think I'm a more uh, exacting writer. I was like, it's still hard to come up with an idea and still hard to sell it. But when I'm writing, I, I, I put more effort into it because like, yeah, there's a big difference between the words here and the words there. Just crafting it is, is the fun part of it. Right. I mean, I, I have like, you know, like bar napkins and matchbook covers with scribbled, scribbled notes. <laughs> you know, that's it was funny that's how at I, the time, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you just kind of wrote something down when inspiration came into your head. Like, I, I was never good at sitting down and like, I'm going to write jokes now. It just never came to me that way. I remember I was telling somebody like the very first time I did it, <laughs> you know, and I was trying to put together my first five minutes to go to these clubs. I remember sitting down with a big pen of paper and, you know, shooting the cuffs and going, what's funny? <laughs> like, it's, just, it's such a mess. What do you mean what's funny? It's all. So, you know, it took me a while to realize, well, that's not how you should come at it. Like, just keep your ears open. You say something just funny or something strikes you and then write it. And then, you know, I'll tell you an interesting process when I did my first book uh, and it was... Um, you know, it was it was taking all this material. It was about couples that I had in my act, but I had to sort of. You can't just type it up and put it in the book. You have to rewrite it now because you're not going to be there to deliver it. So you have to write it better and neater. It's like, and then you go, then take that book, and now you want to go do it again on material. It's like when you exchange currency, and like every time you exchange it, you lose a little money. It's like, oh, it's just not even funny now. I just uh, I have over translated this to death. Well, I want to actually circle back around to uh, to the Emmys. Like, so I, I've been nominated for some awards. I've won As some. You should be. Yeah, I've I've won some. Uh, I lost this year for best sports talk show host in Los Angeles, and I was actually very very disappointed and upset. Sorry to hear that. Uh, do you think about winning the Emmy? I would much prefer to win than to not win, but I don't. You know, I think I think you know every person since they're, you know tall enough to stand in a mirror has been practicing some sort of acceptance speech. Yes. Um, uh, I, I have been nominated many times and never won. So I, I, I've gotten to a point of, it's just silly. I don't think about, I don't, I don't plan on it. I don't, um, you know, I, I don't, it's not something, I mean, I think about it to like, well, that would be really cool. And I, I would love to experience that. Um, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like I'm, you know, biting the hand of feeding, but it's like, it's great to be nominated. It's actually even cooler now to be nominated because there's so many, there's so much content out there. So for anybody to single and find your performance and your little show, like, oh, well, that's really flattering. Um, and then in terms of, of the seven, eight, whatever nominees, who gets the most votes is, does it mean you're better? No, it means somehow enough people got off their ass to vote and say, oh, our friend, Eddie's. That's what we read. So I, I don't, I don't put that much stock in it or life thought into it. But um, I, I certainly prefer to win than to go. Fuck Kelsey Grammer again. <laughs> well, listen. This this has been great. It is really cool to get you on the show. Uh, of course, Kaminsky Method on Netflix. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's fantastic. Uh, we really appreciate you doing this, man. And good luck at the Emmys. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you. So lovely to see you as always. You Love too, Paul. You're very funny and you should be up there. No, only if you want to. <laughs> That's not mandatory. Oh, it's not. Okay. Other people go, isn't that so hard? I go, yeah, but you don't have to do it. <laughs> well, that means, hard. 
That means a lot, Paul. I love you. I love you, and I'll see you. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. And there is Paul Reiser. What a great guy. Oh, God, he is a sweetie. You know, it's so funny how when I first saw Paul do stand-up, the thing that I loved about him is that it was always so cozy watching him on stage. Hmm. It it was kind of like as if he were looking at the audience and saying, uh, you know, I'm going to do some funny stuff. You have a minute, (laughs) you know, (laughs) And, 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 and if you're busy, it's okay. I can come back later. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just his persona was so inviting and so fun. He used to do this thing where he'd be like ending his set and he would look at his wrist and he didn't have, he didn't have a watch, but he would, he would look and say, it's time for me to buy a watch. <laughs> you know, it was just, it's just so genuine and yeah. just a charming, charming, funny, funny guy. Well, in fairness, I saw you do stand up. Mm-hmm. When we were near, and I think you, you were fantastic. Oh, are fantastic. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. It was fun. It was fun. But, you know, like, that the lot, but you came back. So you did stand up when we were in New York. Mm-hmm. And then you took a long time off after that? No, when I came back, I still did stand up. And then I started getting work as a producer. And right. my life just changed so much. And, you know, I get out of work at, you know, sometimes nine o'clock at night. And it's like, we're not going to go to a club now. I mean, it's, you know, it's such a commitment. So well, Paul can uh, headline, you can middle and <laughs> I'll, I'll open. Okay. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put that together. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let him know. I'll, I'll get together with him after I get off this, uh, after, after I get off the podcast. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll, we'll set that, that up. We'll set that up. <laughs> um, hey, listen, you know who makes this podcast possible every single time we do it, Sue? Jacob Emrani. Yes, Jacob Emrani. If you are in Los Angeles, if, you, if you're out in the desert, uh, Southern California in particular, and you're involved in any kind of accident, uh, you're injured, whether it's a car accident, motorcycle accident, bike accident, that's happening more and more, especially everybody's got their bikes out right now, pedestrian accident. Uh, you want somebody on your side who has been doing this for 25 years in this town. He is my friend. Uh, he is my attorney. And if you're involved in any kind of accident, he should be your attorney to remember the number 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. 844-24-JACOB or remember the catchy jingle accident or injury call jacob and ronnie call Call jacob Jacob. that was amazing was it yes oh was it like uh holing out from 25 yards on the uh par three third at rancho park i don't want to like rain on your parade but it really was a hole in one nice nice uh sue this was great as always don't forget if you're listening to the podcast Uh, Please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, however you listen. Uh, And uh, we come back with uh, new shows, a couple of shows a week. And uh, we appreciate you being out there. Feel free to rate and review. We always like that. Sue, fun today. Thank you. Thank you. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. Podcast.